it was just, it was a war zone. I remember just growing up in, in, in that time where just going to play volleyball in, in the, in the park with my friends and then rockets are just going over my head. You're listening to City Makers, a show about the people and ideas that are shaping our cities. Brought to you by three friends in three cities, New York, London, and San Francisco. Today I'm interviewing Cassie Anasala. Cass was born in Kabul, Afghanistan in 1985, during the time of Soviet control of the country. And he lived through successive coup d'etats and regime changes that followed. The first one being the rise of the Mujahideen, who were supported by the U.S. in order to oust the Soviets. Then the rise of the Taliban, which pushed out the Mujahideen. And then the invasion of Afghanistan by the U.S. military to push out the Taliban in response to September 11th. All of this puts Kabul or Afghanistan more broadly as a proxy location for superpowers or regional powers to fight for control. You know, this, again, there's so many similarities to what's happening now in Ukraine. So in Ukraine, you have uh, Russia, in this case, decides we want to influence this country. And what we're going to do is we're going to go in, we're going to dispose the government, we're going to put in the puppet government. And another superpower decides, well, we don't want you to do that. So the way we'll stop that is we'll flood the country with armaments in order to push the Russian influence out. So they don't send troops, they send basically guns and bullets. And what Afghanistan shows is the ramifications of what happens after that. So on the one hand, the Mujahideen pushed the Russians out, but the aftermath is you can buy a gun at a flea market, market store. You, like you can literally buy like a grenade launcher and an AK-47. So you might stabilize the country in the short term and you destabilize the country in the long term. I'm Cassiano Sala. I'm a director and partner at Squint Opera, based in the UK. Travel extensively across the Middle East, virtually and now, thankfully, physically. Travel more than anyone I know in post-COVID times. Okay, so to, to me, my personal view is you're a big supporter of the region, right? And that you're, you're like gunning for it and wanting to see it uh, thrive. And, it, you know, country agnostic in a way. It's like, I, I love this part of the world. There are amazing people. There's amazing culture. And these things should thrive and they should be protected. And so I... That always comes through when we talk about the work or we talk about the jobs or what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. I mean, yeah, you, you work in a Western country, Western environment, trying to do work in these places that we don't quite understand. And you're always in the corner of the place. And there is a kind of colonial attitude in the West towards countries that are less developed, um, you know, backward thinking, just just let them be, you know, or they've been around for thousands of years fighting each other, just let them sort it out. I think, I think those, those kind of thinking, it's, it's very backward in, in, in the West and uh, a bit of snobbish and colonial in, in my opinion. And then I think the, the changes that we've seen, particularly in UAE, for example, that 
they are thriving and they have made a lot of mistakes in a very short space of time. How can that translate to some of the other countries and how they could be part of the wider community, which I think, you know, UE has become and other countries are trying to do that. You know, now the, the globe and that sort of, you know, we all live in a global village is such a cliche, but it is, it's a lot more reality now. You know, the world is a lot closer. We'll forget that. I guess it's one or two generations ago, the UAE was formed as a com- country, right? It's like a bunch of tribal nations brought together because of a natural resource. And, and then understanding we won't be able to exist in this world unless we put in things like roads, military, et cetera. All these things that were not really even needed. Yeah. But they had to look to other countries to go, what, what's the model? How will we do this? Something kind of happens to the country in, the, in, this, in this region. And then, okay, now we need guidance. We need help. But the, the issue, there's an issue of trust in terms of who you're going to go to to help guide you yeah. into the next sort of century. Absolutely. I think if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but his, the top of that pyramid is safety and safety of just being able to be alive. And I think what UAE did, for example, was really just one man who brought everyone together. Previously to that, there were tribes who were constantly at war with each other, either through trade or through uh, foreign influence, playing one against the other to create instability, you know, divide and conquer. They were able to create an institution and a country that has thrived. Contrary to that is somewhere like Afghanistan, for example, where the lack of stability has completely fragmented and destroyed the country. And then obviously there is, there's a, you know, this is a lot kind of bigger and, and deeper conversation. But I think what you need, first of all, is safety to be able to think about what is a better space, what is a better place, what is a better economy, and bringing in experts or learning from other, other societies or other countries to be able to implement them in, in your own but while staying with, with Afghanistan, you know, there is a lot of, a lot of that work that was done in, in the past 20 years before Taliban took over in August of this year. You know, there were more there were girls at school, there were more, you know, people you know, in higher education. There were a banking system to be able to fund and, and, Create a structure for for the country to to thrive and and be part of a central central community. So all of that work has just been diminished, and you kind of go back to back to sort of pre Taliban pre uh, pre twenty eleven, where it's just complete uh, mess. So I think I think it's crucial that. We as outsiders just don't forget that and, and trying to help or influence in, in any way that, that you know, some of these neglected countries or societies 
whether it's through through banking or through architecture or through good deeds, you know, bring them to to a level that, that they can they can thrive and find within them to you know create a society that's, that's thriving and it's part of a global village that we just spoke about. When you I mean you're you allude to feels like it's going backwards because you've been through this transition before. And yeah, I think what what are the years or what years are we talking about where in in some way it feels like it's the past has come back again? I'd say uh, I'm not sure who said that, but you know, what you learn from history is that you don't learn from history. And, and it's, it's just quite strange that I am living in it and, you know, I'm only, I'm 36 now. It hasn't been that long, you know, it's like, you know, two or three generations, but sort of one or two generations that you see that reversal of going from a 20th century or you know, going to 21st century, but going back 250 years in one generation. Can we talk a little about the time when you're born in Afghanistan? I was born in 1985 and Afghanistan is, is a very complex and very, very interesting country where it has had a lot of dynasties. It has had a lot of empires, but I was, I was born in the sort of Soviet influence era, so to speak. This is before the invasion of, of, of the Russians, but it's during the cold war where there isn't really a physical, physical war, but there is a war of who, who gets to have the upper hand, whether it's the, the West or, or the East, i.e. USSR. It's a sort of proxy. It's a playground, exactly. So in the, in the South, you have Pakistan, India, basically the gem or the, the, the crown of, of the British Empire. It still has a very close relations with, with the West. You have, you have Iran, who, you know, after the fall of all of... Shah, who was obviously very close ties with the US, you know, a country that has large sums of oil and, and probably, and, you know, one of the biggest nations, both in terms of population and, but also historically a very, very unique place. So losing Iran to, to the religious I guess, fundamentalist, as you, as you would call it back then, probably slightly mellowed now, but late seventies, late seventies, exactly. And then to the West, you have, sorry, to the North, you have all of the ex-Soviet countries, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan. So you, this is, uh, Afghanistan is always deemed as a kind of roof of the earth and geopolitically one of the most important countries to be able to control or, or have a control over some of the neighboring countries who are, you know, just happens to be the biggest or your biggest enemy. So USSR and obviously, obviously China. But for, for the Russians. Strategically positioned, not necessarily for natural resources, but. For, no, uh, no, 
natural, re- <clears throat> natural resources, Afghanistan doesn't have oil. It's a landlocked country. There, there isn't really a lot of natural resources. I mean, there is, there is aluminium, there, there is, you know, other kind of precious gems, but there is no fossil fuel like Iran or, or Iraq or Saudi Arabia. It's purely geographically positioned to, to have an, to have a base to control the rest of the, the rest of the region. But for, for Russia, it was always about not allowing the, the, the religious fundamentalists, uh, is Islamist religious fundamentalists to be able to infiltrate in the north of Afghanistan, so countries like Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, which would have created a problem. And obviously, uh, USSR was, didn't particularly believe in religion and, and destroying all forms of religious icons, I guess, mosques, books, everything was sort of burnt to the ground. But one thing really united Afghans were always their religion. So if, and, and always invaders, you know, they fight against each other, you know, 50 more plus different tribes, ethnicities, you know, four or five different languages, but they unite when you have an invader and when their religion is, is threatened. So growing up, going back to the eighties, it was a time where the, the USSR had, had probably the biggest influence in the country. So there were coup d'etats after coup d'etats, but the central government had a very close link to, to Moscow. There's more influence rather than presence. It's not like you're seeing Russians. No, you don't see Russians, but you probably see Russian diplomats, you know, going into the you know, the House of Parliament or visiting the, the president. Um, there was fighting and conflict along the edges of the country. Very little, very little. And it was always sort of suppressed by the invasion of um, Afghanistan by the Russians. You know, that, that was the, that was, that was the time where the, the USA and, and really took it seriously and start arming tribesmen really to, to go and fight against them. And obviously Pakistan played an important role in, and, and being a sanctuary for those, for those countries. So, the, I mean, the invasion, obviously there was very easy, like it always has been invading Afghanistan was always seen as a, as a still is quite easy to, to capture it. It's retaining it. It's, it's, it's very, very it's hard and to be very, very difficult for Probably every army that's ever existed on this planet. Exactly. No matter how technically advanced or whatever kind of tools and gadgets you have. It's a longevity. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly diverse country in terms of landscape. So you have the highest is about 7,000 above sea level. The lowest is, you know, 200 above sea level. So, you know, in terms of climate. Um, terrain, thousands of years of occupation and trade through Silk Road. That uh, you 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 know posts that are you know five or six thousand above sea level and very remote areas, and all they do is 
just wait around for an invader to go past and you know bring them down you might you might have a quick win but in the long run if you if you got the guts when you've and they and they have you can play it out and you become victorious so that you know the previous russian invasion was 10 years now the you know the nato with the us at the helm biggest army 20 years in in the long run you know you you can't capture it you can't you can't hold on to it you're listening to city makers a show about the people and ideas that are shaping our cities So going back to sort of 1985 when I was born, I, I don't obviously, you know, just just born, don't really have much recollection of, you know, what it was like to live in during a Russian time. But I do remember my... Were you born in the city or outside? I was born in the city. I was born in Kabul. Yeah, yeah. I was born in Kabul. My father was a doctor, one of, one of eight siblings. My father had... So... My family had a coupon, which was given to all government workers at the time, very kind of Soviet system that you, you go and queue up and get your food rations. And it was mostly, I remember just tins of, um, tins of food, tuna, I remember tins of tuna and beans, and then you had these really thick chunky pieces of wholemeal bread that was baked biggest factory like uh a bakery that was made by the soviets when i industrial giant central location for all bread exactly and and the area that that factory existed were called the bakery street or the bakery district and it still it still remains the, the building is now unused, but it's a magnificent building. I mean, if you just look, look at it, it's just solid. And it was a machine that was feeding the entire government sector. Obviously, population-wise, probably a lot less than what it is now, but you had the army, you had the Russians, you had the general public, government workers to feed, and it all came through that one bakery. So I, I remember that vividly, but also remember my my brother-in-law who, who worked for the government. He was given a an apartment that was made by the by the Soviets, and these are just a typical typical Soviet blocks, almost like council type buildings. A prototype that was developed, I'm guessing, in, in somewhere in Russia that. It's now very synonymous with all of the uh, countries that ever had been occupied by the Soviets or had an influence by the Soviet Union. So the same building prototype I see in Ukraine, or just images of it. These were the rectangular blocks, densely packed apartments. Yes, yeah, or square, long square buildings. But they're incredibly robust. Those buildings right now are... The, the most sought-after buildings in the whole of Afghanistan, even to this day. Insulation-wise, the, the kind of infrastructure that was built with the central heating, first central heating system in the country, 
underground storage, hospitals for the community, shops, schools, playgrounds, everything was created for the communities to live and thrive. And most of that remains to this day because of how robust and how, how unique, you know, designed for, for, for those, you know, eighties communities to, to live. Again, hospitals that are, remain to this day are the hospitals that were created by the, by the Soviets. Schools are the same. I, I went to a school that was actually created by, by the French. It, it called Lycée de Clare, which means the, the school of independence. And it was a gift by, by the, by the French. And obviously the French wanted to have an influence. This, this is back in the seventies or I think maybe late sixties where the, the, the Americans actually went to Afghanistan, they built a road in the south of the country. The, the Brits also wanted to have a bit of an influence and as well as the French. But obviously their influences diminished. It was the Soviets that had the most influence. And looking back on it now, the, the buildings that remain, buildings that have survived are the buildings that were created by during that era, you know, the, the French, the Russians, even the American road remains. There are pre architecture pre that time. Is there, are there like extra buildings? The, uh, well, in Kabul, yes. Yeah. So like I said, you know, uh, uh, Afghanistan is such a, such a unique place in terms of its geography, but I think it's the, it's the dynasties and the influences of different civilizations and different empires that sort of shaped the vernacular and the architecture of, of the country. Terrain has a bit, big part to play in it. So you, you have in the north of the country where it's very much mountainous and the houses are designed to to capture the sun and it's embedded in the in the rocks the thermal mass is solid it's huge based around courtyards and then in the south of the country where it's very flat and almost desert-like conditions it's rammed earth or, or clay or, or mud mud houses very much the the the, the traditional the influences of uh, are passed on from generation to generation. There isn't there isn't really a, a kind of code of that's written somewhere in stone or in books, but it's a, it's a knowledge that's been passed on from one generation to another generation. And they are incredibly uh, resilient and incredibly you know it works. It it just works and. You only have to unpeel it to be able to see why it works. But unfortunately, the, the new generation, you know, only sees those types of buildings as nuisance rather than a you know a way to kind of have a better living because it's not shiny enough. It doesn't have a lift that takes you to the top, unfortunately. So, you know, 
my training as an architect has obviously been working in the built environment. It always has been about how a builder looks like from the outside, but growing up in Afghanistan and, and visiting on average every two to three years uh, for the past 20 years has really sort of taught me that it's not really about that. It's more about the usability and, and it's more about, I guess, the dignity that you have in those spaces. So whether it's a, a mosque or a, or a parliament or, um, or a coach station is how can you, if it's a coach station, how can you bring in thousands of people through a small little enclave and create a passage for them that works and, and it serves the need rather than it being shiny concrete with, with glass, a glass facade. The dwellings in the houses, you mentioned courtyards, so yeah, like much of the region, courtyards become important or a sense of privacy or where the family can gather almost an outs exactly of that vernacular. Yeah. So unfortunately courtyard was one of the, um, one of the features that got lost through, through the modernization and through the war and now through the reconstruction phase of, of the country, because a lot of the influences came from the West or different parts of the, the world and, and the, the courtyard idea somehow lost a courtyard plays a, a huge part in family gatherings and about cooling and it's almost like a mini piazza within within you know your own if you think about your own sort of family as being a, in a, uh, an urban city you know a courtyard is your little piazza and then obviously every community would have their own form of squares where you gather as a community, the mosque was, was a place that you would, you would, you would meet and discuss communal problems. And then obviously zooming out a bit more, you have the, the government buildings where, you know, where most decisions were, were made. So thinking about urban building and component and then in a component sort of size uh, and building courtyard was the essential part of day-to-day lives of most Afghans. Not, not nomads, but, you know, rural areas, you know, courtyard was, was very essential. You're listening to City Makers, a show about the people and ideas that are shaping our cities. In terms of the occupier or the Russians, was there a, a kind of movement to push them out? You, 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 in some way, speak of the benefits of the influence, you know, it might not feel that way at the time, but with it, was there an undercurrent of these are invaders and they, they need to go or is that? Of course. Yeah. And, and obviously propaganda and uh, foreign influence to try and play one side against the other had a huge part to play in there. But of course they were invaders. They were trying to suppress the people of Afghanistan and changed their identity from uh, a, a country that has a rich history to a country that's a communist part of the part of the mill, so to speak. So there is obviously natural resistance, and and my father was resisted that 
trajectory of his work and, 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 you know, also paid the price for, for it. And he was in prison for a year for, you know, speaking against the, the Russian influence. So yeah, so back to your question, of course, there was, there was resist, resistance and, and that resistance grew and grew. Did it materialize into armed conflict? Yeah. And, 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 you know, the different, different parts of the country where I mean, having, having a gun was, was allowed. And it was a very kind of tribal areas, you know, south of Afghanistan, border in Pakistan or south, southeast. Those areas to this day, you know, having a gun is legal. Even if you are in Pakistan, those areas are known as the lawless areas where a gun is sold in the shops very freely and easily. So it was quite easy to just pick up a gun. I know that sounds crazy to you because you live in the UK, but don't forget I live in America. I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, well, no, New York City, it's thankfully, it's hard to get your hands on, but you don't have to go very far to buy one. Yeah. No one's perfect. That's the thing. Yeah. There, there is a very easy correlation, I think, with kind of fundamentalism, whether it's on, whether the side of the spectrum or, or whether it's religion or, or constitution, you know, that, that sort of fundamentalist idea. The, that they're the frontier, right? The, you know, you, you kind of describe it a little bit. Landscape, it's like, it's, it's that front, you know, frontierman, for lack of a better word, that you're out on your own protecting yourself. And your family. Yeah. It's very, very strong the, the United, the U.S. sort of uh, mentality. Precisely. And I think um, that comes from being a lone wolf, I guess. Being a shepherd and just sort of protecting yourself from the wolves. You know, America is such a vast country. That you, if you had people come in and, you know, to your land, you want to know why or, or who. And then you, you bring in the sort of civil rights and different ethnicities. Those are the reasons that they had them. Same, same way with Afghanistan. You had invaders, you have different tribes, you have religious people who protected their, their family. You know, having a gun was, was actually quite, you know, it's just a must have. But there was a lot of guns that were actually left over from the two, the two Anglo-Afghan wars. There's a lot of kind of guns in, in households. I remember just visiting my extended family. So both my parents, they're not from Kabul. They're from a, a place called Khazni, which is south of, slightly south of, of Kabul, about two hours drive. And it was the epicenter of, of Ghaznawi dynasty, which, you know, kind of encompasses Iran, Afghanistan, sort of north of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. Anyway, so those areas sort of visiting during, during my childhood was, had shaped me immensely in, in my sort of thinking of architecture, but also just how many guns were around and those guns were just stunning. They were so, they were so beautiful, but it was, they were mantelpiece in people's, people's homes. Had it been used, but people had them. And then obviously later on that, that was replaced by Kalashnikovs. So like iconic, mass. iconic, uh, Russian. Exactly. Yeah. And it was mass produced and everyone had them. So they were sold freely in the, in the bazaars of Afghanistan, Pakistan region. So very easy to, 
to sort of throw in a few more, a few more guns and these anti-aircraft missiles by the Americans, were, which were, you know, in terms of price, they were easily 500,000 to a million per piece, but they were given to Afghans in droves. Given to who? Given, given to warlords, given to, given to people who are fighting against, against the Russians. Is this outside the city or what? This is outside the city. This is all outside the city. So it's all, it's still, I think, you know, Charlie Wilson's war is it's a good film to yeah. watch. You haven't seen it. Yeah, I have. So how, how the Congress sort of passed on you know, the, the budget to go and fund the Mujahideens. And of course, they were freedom fighters at the time. The satellite was named after them or a, a rocket going to space was named after the Mujahideen. And the people who... They end up fighting for 20 years, the Taliban, you know, they are the descendants of those, those Mujahideens. They were the creation. Is there a split between the Mujahideen and the Taliban? Are these two different factions? Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, there, there is a split, but it is an evolution. It is an evolution. Obviously, the, when, the ta- when Kabul fell in early 90s, so... Eight to nine, the Russians left two or three years of, of Soviet-backed government who was in place in a bit similar to what just happened with, with Afghanistan. You know, the troops left in, the majority of the troops left in 2014, 15, 16. Then four years of small presence and government that's backed by, by, the, by the Russians or by the Americans. 1991, 92, so 91, is when that government fell. And the Mujahideens, which were made up of seven different leaders from different tribes, took control of Kabul. They couldn't form a government. They started fighting each other. So the civil war broke. And the civil war was, was catastrophic for, for Afghans. People were displaced. You know, I remember our family, we had to migrate to Pakistan for a year because of the war in Kabul, all the buildings of just bullets all over Kabul, peppered with bullets, you know, holes, just everywhere. It was just, it was a war zone. I remember just growing up in, in, in that time where just going to play volleyball in, in the, in the park with my friends and then rockets are just going over my head. Fighting for, for territory. Yeah. For control. Um, amongst themselves. Amongst themselves, yeah. And then you had this, you had this this movement called the Taliban, which by name they it's called the students. So Talib is a student. Taliban means plural students, and they were they grew up in in Pakistan, most of them in madrasas and. Most of them were immigrants who who moved to Afghanistan uh, from Afghanistan to Pakistan during the war with the Russians. Most of the people spoke Pashto, which is you know the second largest. I think it's the second largest ethnicity in Pakistan, and people spoke Urdu fluently, which was the biggest and the, and the national language of Pakistan. And obviously, the rest is history and you probably know more about that the, the second part of it so 
but but it's also interesting that Osama bin Laden is it from Saudi Arabia. It's like Saudi via Pakistan into Afghanistan. I was always confused as why to why Afghanistan was the country that the Americans decided to invade after September 11th. Is that because that's where Osama bin Laden was? was basing himself for a period of time anywhere. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's why his, he and his gangs were, and obviously they, they give an ultimatum to the Taliban, say, can you hand him over? Hand over him and his allies. And obviously as part of the, the kind of tribal codes that you never hand over your, your guests. They're our guests, we protect them. And that's what the Taliban said. And obviously that there was a 48-hour warning or I've forgotten how long that was, but it resulted in in war. It's interesting from the point of view of, I mean, look, most countries don't like the neighboring countries. You know, this this is not unusual. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the politics aside, it's the proxy war that the, the continuous proxy war of two other countries using Afghanistan as their pivot point in order to achieve a different initiative. You know, so it's just yeah, yeah, absolutely. really how, how devastating that can be to the country and how, how influential and how it just never seems to stop. And it, it serves countries' purposes for a while until it doesn't anymore. Yeah. And then what's left behind, there's never an opportunity to form, you know, your own government because... It's just the location for the next proxy battle. Yeah, right? absolutely. Absolutely. It, it is, or it has been the epicenter of proxy war and how that destabilizes an entire country and, and obviously finding, finding a way for people to go back to safety and thrive. You need those safety nets to be able to do that. You're listening to City Makers, a show about the people and ideas that are shaping our cities. Because of its proximity and location, it's so, it has a lot of foreign influence and maybe, you know, we touched on the negatives. Other, you know, what are the positive, if, if you kind of accept this as a place that because of its location, it's mm. always influenced by its neighbors or other countries for one reason or the other. Some of those can be negative. What are the, there must be positive influences as well. Well, absolutely. I think, I mean, food is, is a good one. You know, I think not many people probably know what an Afghan uh, food is like, but it's it definitely has influences as far as, say, China, where, you know, dumplings is, is one of the delicacies, or cobbly, which is another sort of dish which is more synonymous with Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. It's, uh, uh, you know, the diversity of it or, you know, that's, that's definitely one, one of the positives. I mean, it also other positives in terms of the actual architecture. So you have, you have buildings that are uh, made in a shape of, you know, how people would live in, in Bamiyan, uh, for example, versus, you know, uh, a community that were living in Kandahar in a, a lot more warmer climate. So there is definitely a, a variety of mixture. Uh, clothing is, is another one. So all of the obvious stuff where, you know, you the melting pot becomes, uh, you know, a, a capital or a, in a, in a what about, Afghanistan. 
what about organizations, sort of NGOs and these kind of things that tend to follow behind uh, in areas of conflict? I mean, there are many, and particularly after the fall of um, Taliban in 2001, uh, there were a lot of NGOs that followed, a lot of them for money, and some of them for better uh, of the human race, and particularly Afghanistan, who've seen war for so long. There was, even up to now, the the kind of the word was or the way it was sort of described was that the western money that came in through one channel or one pocket were being taken away through another pocket so ngos basically empowered ngos uh you know to take that money so they were winning the rfps they were winning all of the all of the work that's been tendered um by by the western and particularly nato so of course, some Afghans saw that, and a lot of Afghans did get all of that money, which ended up in Dubai and in or you know warlord homes. They had to buy them out, but the majority of people uh, money on that investment ended up in uh, NGOs and companies who established themselves in that time. But there is also exceptions, you know, just like, you know, we all human beings aren't the same. There are exceptions to to that. There are some NGOs and organizations that uh, have left a legacy and will leave a legacy beyond even the current situation there is. And one I can think of is turquoise mountain was set up by rory stewart he he's in currently he's a conservative mp i know conservatives do get a lot of slack but he's definitely not cut from the same cloth as the rest of them but he was uh when the the afghanistan uh the taliban fell in 2001 he was one of the first people to go to the country and he traveled across the country so if you think of afghanistan uh as a uh, as a whole, what connects them is a ring road that uh, was was made back in back in the early fifties, I believe. And he he walked majority of that through different villages, very dangerous territories ruled by warlords who were, you know, uh, obviously just being invaded by American forces or by native forces to see a white person. You know, he was very, very brave to do that. And then he also wrote a book about it. And he completely fell in love with, with Afghanistan. You know, Rory Stewart then went on to uh, uh, represent the, the home office in, uh, in, in Iraq. But from his love affair with Afghanistan and his connection, he set up an NGO called Turquoise Mountain. And that was through the Prince's Trust. And what they actually do was preserve historical arts and artifacts of, of the country. The same theme has now been replicated through many different countries, Myanmar being one of them. I also believe they have a setup in Jordan, and now they have uh, established a presence in Alula in Saudi Arabia. Obviously, it's there isn't a war in Saudi Arabia at the moment, but uh, the, the initial 
thinking was to how to preserve art and culture. They they started with preserving this historical quarter in Kabul, which was at its prime back in the sort of 17 or late 17 to 18, uh, uh, 1870 or uh, was was the kind of epicenter in, in Kabul, and it was completely destroyed by by the wars. It became a fruit market, completely dilapidated, eroding. With with enough funding and some experts from the UK and individuals from across the world, he managed to preserve and bring back to life that that particular part of uh, Kabul, and. He set up workshops for the local people, invited the orphans in in Afghanistan to learn some of the uh, artistry and artisan traits of of that particular era. So, became really successful. the 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 children that were working there, or or people that were working for Turquoise Mountain, were creating their own jewelry, learning uh, music as well as calligraphy. And, and some of their work were being sold on the international market and traveling exhibitions, which gave back to the community and to the society. So that's what Turquoise Mountain did. Uh, and I believe that that's what Turquoise Mountain would like to carry on doing. I think that organization still exists. And the reason that they exist is the love and passion of an individual or just to start with a leader who managed to convince people around them that this is the right thing to do. And because it was the right thing to do, and I believe that it will survive the test of time. There, was, there wasn't an agenda of a quick fix getaway. Empower what's already there. And it, exactly. You know, they didn't see it through the premism of what are the rest of the, the Western powers thought, which was this is a popular thing to do let's do it it would get me more election votes and then move on it was seen as the right thing to do and with a long-term strategy and that strategy has paid off it's it's an absolutely exceptional piece of work by turquoise mountain and i and i, and I hope that continues beyond beyond the current taliban regime and so that kind of leads to the question of what's next. I mean, without clearly right now, it's very chaotic and it's hard to understand where things lead, but you know, you've lived through, we say like two, tra two transitions of power in a way or influence, and maybe it's hard to be positive. You know, how, what's the road out of the current situation? I think people are tired. There is a fatigue in everyone's faces. A bit like after Second World War, the Western world were, were tired. There was just no, there was no appetite to fight. And I, and I can see that in the eyes of the, the Talib who have who been fighting for almost 20 years now. And I also see it in, in the eyes, in the face of general public, who who struggling to make ends meet? There is definitely now a space for reconciliation, 
and, and hopefully understanding each other. Because the other way is war and killing one another. And so I hope that that realization manifests itself in, in uh in Afghanistan for the for the better of, of Afghans. I think that's that's a wish and a hope. Uh, but I also think that the powers be, the powers who are now you know taken rejoicing the, the fall of the Western world and emboldened by the fact that they no longer has an influence there would want to stamp their own authority. And obviously the, the Western world would want to have difficult to let go for them. They would want to punish the uh, Afghanistan and the Afghan people. So that that's the sort of danger of it, that the, the loop goes on. And obviously uh, a house with no roof doesn't belong to anyone. Yeah, that's the chaos and the insecurity or the lack of it <laughs> continues on for, for many more decades. Is there, do you see, a, it's, it's funny because it's like if just speaking to you and it's, you kind of see that the waiting of the next influence to come in to stabilize things, but surely that's not, maybe that's a myopic view of it. You know, is there a, path which is afghans yeah. taking control of their own country without foreign, foreign intervention. influence or you know, intervention is the right word i i hope so i don't i don't believe it because it's now it's now too messy and there are too many powers involved too many powers would would like to have a have a say in the politics of that country. I mean, never say never, you know, countries do just coming back from a war, do reunite and rethink about how, uh, you know, how they should run themselves. I mean, if you think about, you know, an example, Saudi Arabia, you know, or, or UAE for that matter, reignited by, by one leader, by one person, seven seven emirates coming together and now they have station in mars and, and that all happened in 50 years so obviously at the beginning of course they had natural resources on their side and that 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 was the spark wasn't it there's some sort of spark that some common ground that brings people together and, and maybe in that case it was a natural resource Yes, yes, but it will be slow. Whatever is hap will happen, it will be very slow, and it will be accumulative. I think if it's the leaders, the people treat themselves, treat each other better, and live side by side, I think the, the the violence will plummet. You know, one of the best thing I would say for cheap travel. Obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of worse thing that happens with cheap travel, you know, pollution and uh, uh, you know destroying our climate. But it it has also enabled us to learn and understand about other cultures. I I know more about Europe than than I did before traveling, and which is why I was upset to be leaving or UK to to be exiting the European Union. And it's the same with Afghanistan. That I think those communities, if they can 
try and live side by side and, and you know, learn about each other's story. If there is a commonality that, that hopefully can be, can be resonate with, with all of them and trying to figure something out and, and co cohabit and make, make that country, uh, less of a, less of a threat to the rest of the world, but also set an example for future generations in Afghanistan. We not leave itself open to foreign intervention in this, where there's like remove the excuse for some other country to come in to you know, supposedly exactly. Exactly. Uh, stabilize. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. I appreciate you. this conversation. I mean, is there anything else you want to add or you know, when you look to the future and some sort of hope that um, you have for your home country? No, just thank you for for giving me this platform. No, thank you. Uh, what what it has done is at least sort of selfishly for me to kind of go back and revisit some of the stuff. Some of them on the spot, uh, you know, having I'm certainly not an expert in Afghanistan. That's for sure. I've lived and and a lot of the stuff that happened, I tried to bury it under the surface and kind of get on with my life here because some of them are painful and revisiting some of that has given me a bit of closure but also it has it's allowed me to sort of think about uh the society in more than just uh sort of small little nuggets that i see on the news or or i have in in my memory so i i, I thank you for that but as as everyone know you know afghanistan is going through a, a very tough tough time more than ever i think more than all of the sort of wars that happened over the past 40 years. It's the, it's the famine, it's the, the, the lack of basic human um, need, which is crippling the entire country. There's over 90% of people living in poverty level for a country that every single aspect of it relied on uh, help from foreign countries, whether it was teachers or whether it was, uh, you know, a civil servant working any of the offices. Now that money is frozen. There is no money for those people to go and buy the basic basic needs. Malnourishment against amongst children are the highest it's ever been. The reports are coming in that you know over hundred children are dying on a, on a daily basis in one of the hospitals. So it's a, it's a very dire situation. I mentioned Turquoise Mountain, but I, I can't not mention another NGO, which is called Emergency, uh, Emergency Dileno. They, they have been through thick and thin in, uh, over the past 30 years in, in Afghanistan and providing medical services for, for, um, for Afghans. They're, they're a global organization, uh, but the work they do in Afghanistan is second to none. I hope I, I could do more for, for the people of Afghanistan, but I contribute monthly to that organization and I'll leave it to the experts to see how they could help people who need it the most. If anyone is listening to this and can contribute in any way towards their you know, longevity uh, and do more of what they do, I think that'll be greatly appreciated, not just by myself, but also the people of Afghanistan. 
that's all. All right, we'll share that information, give people an opportunity to, to do that. Thank you. Thanks, Gas. Thanks, Matt.